0: So let's look at Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2. Starting in verse 1 again. And uh, we will read through verse 5. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Last week, we had to slow down and stop and talk about those first two words in verse 4 of the divine intervention of God, the but God. And in these two verses, as we are starting to see in reading the rest of verse 4 and verse 6, is the scope of the entirety of the gospel. And not only that, we also see the scope of the entirety of salvation history, which is what we walked through last week. Verses 4 through 10, which is where we will eventually get to in these coming weeks, gives us the particulars of that gospel, the saving purposes of, of God and shows us the process, I mean it it literally shows us the process by which any of us are saved and how we are saved. It is in verses 4 and 5, though we have two great themes being shown to us. Today we're going to cover one of those themes and next week we're going to cover the other. The first one that we're going to cover today is, I believe, the main subject of this passage. The active the active subject. The one who is doing all the work. The one who has done all the planning. The one who has accomplished everything. And that is God. And in this passage, we see... Portions, Parts of the character and nature of God. And to not explore them and not to look at them and to just quickly read over them and quickly get to the... Hey, Lottie, stop, please. And to quickly get to the passive recipients of the verse would be a travesty. And how quickly it is for us to always move to, to what can I get out of this? How could this apply to me? And we end up doing the most disastrous work of of application and interpretation by applying things that are not even part of the text. Things that we shouldn't even apply. So here, we have the character and nature of God on display. His rich mercy, His saving kindness, His grace... What is also amazing is that in this paragraph, which in the Greek most of it is just the one long sentence, that in the same paragraph or the same sentence, you have the wrath of God toward all of mankind, those who are all who are spiritually dead, and yet in the same breath we have the love of God and we have the grace of God and the mercy of God. Aren't those a contradiction? How is that? You see, there is is no gospel message without the whole truth. The whole truth of the wrath of God and the mercy of God and the grace of God being brought together in Christ. You see, the good news, what we call the gospel, is just that. Is that the wrath of God towards sinners, toward all mankind, has been satisfied in His Son, Jesus Christ, because God has divinely intervened on our behalf. That Christ took on our sin. He took on our sin and our unrighteousness, and His righteousness and perfect life has been put on us. This is where I think the world believes that Christianity is just a pie in the sky religion. They think that we're just dealing with fluffy rainbows and fairies, that lives really are not changed. But the Christian message, the Christian message is such as this, is that it says that you never could save yourself. The Christian message tells us that, that, that in of yourself there is no righteousness. The Christian message tells even the believer and how we live before the world is that where you have failed in your righteousness before God, Jesus has perfectly fulfilled and satisfied. And this is one of the real freedoms that we find in the gospel. The real freedoms for Christians is that we don't get the, we don't we don't have to pretend, we don't have to pretend and believe that it is our righteousness that has saved us or makes us right before God. But the freedom is, is we know the one who is righteous. And that he is the one who is also righteous working in us so to understand this this gospel message we we need to start with with god and that's what we've we've really been doing over these weeks we need to start with with him so let me give you an illustration before we unpack the text of how i how i pictured, and i even drew a little picture i'm not an artist but i even drew a little picture in my journal just kind of thinking about this text is is this and it's going to be flawed and i know bill will have problems with it but but just deal with it here it is I, I pictured this. I pictured a water faucet, right? Uh, a, I, I call it a water spigot, right? And you called it a water spigot coming out of the side of the house. Apparently, the spigot is not in the dictionary, or I would have used that on, uh, on here. Well, at least it wasn't on my dictionary on my computer. And, and I pictured a, a, a water spigot. And, and the water that comes out of that spigot is grace and mercy. It is the, the water that washes over us. His grace and mercy. His love is the actual faucet itself his love is the the faucet itself and and behind all that which i think is the is is also what's thrusting this text forward and we talked about it in chapter one is that god's glory is the pipe it's his is his glory is the pipe that's that's channeling that water through that faucet of his love particularly on his people And when God opens up the faucet and pours out His rich mercy and His glorious grace, the blood of Jesus Christ washes over us and cleanses us anew, makes us alive, saving us for His glorious purposes. So we have in this passage that we're going to talk about this morning, Three parts of the character of God. And I mentioned it in the faucet example: grace and mercy, His love. That's well, three there: His grace, His mercy, and His love. And I want to start with His mercy or His mercy. Verse four starts with His mercy because it says, "But God, but God, being rich in mercy." Not the first time that we've we've saw a verse describing. This way, rich, lavishes, abundant, and so verse four, God sharing His rich mercy comes out of verses one through three. Verses one through three, the spiritual reality of all mankind is death, but God, being rich in mercy, I thought about that word "rich" for just for a few moments. And I just thought to myself, oh, what, what small things we consider rich in this world. What, what trivialities we call wealth. And we're captivated by that wealth. We're, we're, we're captivated by those riches. We, we entertain ourselves with the lifestyles of the rich and famous. And why? Because we want to identify with them. We want to see how it is to feel Wealthy, the feel rich. Yet here, in verse in chapter two, verse four, the rich mercy of God is poured out, abundant, extravagant. And it's a mercy that never runs out. It's a mercy that never runs out. Mercy here is described by definition as as a compassion or a pity that God shows on those who are in dire need. And that makes sense for us, because looking at verses 1 through 3, all of mankind is in dire need. And it is the compassion of God and showing love toward us. And we were once in that state, dead in our sins, Unbelievers still, they believe that they are free to live life. Yet they are blinded, they are enslaved to their sin. As we all once were. We all once walked in that manner. We all once were all children of wrath. But God being rich in mercy. Isn't this what mankind does when they think about the mercy of God? Is that they presume that mercy is owed to them? I mean, we, we do it in, in, in the rest of, uh, of our life. Isn't our response when we, when we are guilty of something that we want mercy? That is our first instinct. We want mercy. When we get pulled over, don't we want mercy? We all want mercy for ourselves. But we turn around and we look at others and we never want mercy for the other guy. Everyone else is guilty. How thankful we should be that God is merciful to those who do not deserve mercy. How thankful and grateful we should be that God is merciful to those who do not deserve mercy but only wrath. Do you presume the mercy of God? Do you presume the mercy of God as if if He owes it to you? That God owes His goodness to you? That God owes His mercy to you? Brothers and sisters, this is a point we must remember daily. That it is not mercy that we are owed, but it is wrath that we are owed. It is judgment that we are owed. Mercy is not something that you choose. What you have chosen is death and wrath because the wages of our sin is death. The full portion of the wrath of God but God being rich in mercy. And if wrath and judgment is all we deserve, why has God responded with mercy and compassion toward us? The answer to that question is our next point, and that is God's great love. God's great love. This is coming out of verse 5. We'll see that in in verse 5. French theologian of the 12th century, Bernard de Clairvaux, said this about the love of God. He loves you more than you love him, and he loved you before you loved him. Now, he didn't just make something up here. It sounded good. He's pulling out of some pretty strong texts and saying that. But listen to that. He loves you more... (laughs) then you love Him. And He loved you before you loved Him. Sums up very well the love of God. By far, the the love of God is is the the most spoken about, preached about, taught about of the attributes of God. and, And unfortunately, without question, is the most misunderstood. The most misunderstood. Why is that? To give you an example, how, how can we teach this Sunday about the love of God and say without question that God loves you, and then on the same Sunday, I don't know if they meet on Sundays, but on the same day, a person like Joel Osteen can say the same thing, that God loves you, but do we really mean the same thing? Are we meaning the same thing? What is it? What makes it different? I mean, isn't love, love? Love is described in in many churches looks the exact same as our culture. And our culture says, whatever you want love to be is love to you. Whatever you want it to be is love to you. And the church has adopted those feelings of saying, whatever you want love to be is love to you. Just say, however you want God to love you, that's how God has loved you. Even if, even if it means to objectively deny reality, the reality of of created order, even if it objectively denies the meaning of Scripture altogether, love is whatever you want it to be. Love is a feeling that is here today and gone tomorrow. And the sad thing about it, what the human race does not understand because they are blind and they are dead in their sin, is that love has become meaningless. Love has become meaningless. It's lost all of its power and its meaning. It's unable to to bear any weight. So when struggling, suffering, hurt, pain, treachery comes, love runs. Love runs because love and our culture and love that we've adopted in many ways is only just a fleeting emotion. It's what used to be called puppy love. And we have treated the love of God the same way. I have very strong language about this that I'm not going to use. <laughs> that Old Testament prophets have. But this is not the love of God. The love of God does not take your greatest need and sweep it away so that you feel good about yourself. The love of God does not ignore your death and your stench. The love of God brings you from death to life with truth. The love of God is God divinely intervening on your behalf when you could not. This is the love of God. The love of God is is His commitment to bring about the best for you and for His people, even though you don't deserve it. It's bringing about the best for you and for us. And this is the use of the word love here in, 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 in Ephesians 2. And I misspoke, it's not verse 5, it's verse 4. Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loves you, loves us. This speaks of such an unconditional nature of God. The unconditional nature of the love of God. Meaning this, when I say unconditional, it means without conditions, without prerequisites, and without stipulations. But we also need to add something to that. God's love in that unconditional way is dependent upon His self-sufficiency. Meaning this, God needs nothing. God is lacking nothing. So God did not love you so that you would love Him back. Because He doesn't need your love. He is perfectly satisfied and joyful within the Trinity of Himself. God is not needy. We are the needy ones. We are the needy ones. And His unconditional nature means that in God, as He loves us, He is not benefited from our love. He's not benefited in even loving us. God's love is completely selfless. This is so hard for us to grasp because our love toward one another is not selfless. Even at our best, even when we try, it is so stained with some kind of ill motive that we want something out of it. That it fulfills something for us. None of us have ever loved anyone else or even God himself with this way. In this way, no one. God does not look at you, at your quality or your worth, because as we remember from verses 1 through 3, our quality in our worth is broken. A wrath, wrathful toward the Lord, wickedness, walking in the course of this world with a shaking fist toward God, not wanting Him. Not desiring to be rescued. But out of his merciful love, he loves us. He doesn't look at our quality as if it's something to, to, uh, to make God say, Ah, oh, I think I choose him because he's awesome. So do you hear the power here? Do you, do you see the, the strength of the genuineness of God's love? Oh, church, marvel in this. Marvel in the, the depths and uh, truths of God's love toward His people. This is, this is an area in which you can never completely explore. It's like trying to explore the depths of the ocean. You will never get to the bottom of it. He's not waiting for you to love us, to love Him. Praise God for that. Praise God that He's not waiting for us to love Him so that He could love us back as if we give Him permission to do so. First John 4, 9 and 10 says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this love, verse 10, not that we have loved God, but God loved us and sent His Son to be a propitiation for our sins. Not that we have loved God. Romans 5, 7 and 8. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps a good one for would dare to even die, but God, love there is but God again, but God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, and while we were still walking the course of this world, walking in trespasses and sin with a raised fist against God, Christ died for us. This is how God has loved us. And because this is true, God has a purpose for us. God has a purpose for us, for His people that in His love, He wants us to experience the the joy and the fullness of that love. Many in our culture say, well, if that's how God loves us, if God really loves us, then then why does God demand so much from me? Isn't God just trying to take away my happiness? Well, let's go back to the self-sufficiency argument. It's not that God needs your obedience or our love. Rather, he knows that we need to give love to him. We will only experience joy. We will only experience real joy and happiness in this life when we love God the way that he has intended us to love him and follow him. God alone is worthy to be worshipped here because of how he has loved us. God alone. Concluding on this point, God's love is only great. God's love is only great to those who understand the wrath and judgment that was due to them. God's love is only great to those who understand the wrath and judgment that was due to them and then delight in the fact that the punishment of that wrath that was due them was absorbed by Christ. And this is what heretics and false teachers and nominal Christians miss. This is what those who who teach the prosperity gospel miss. They miss the deep joy that is found in knowing this truth If your understanding of God's love this morning is only measured in the things that you have and what you think God has given you in your stuff, in your family, or even your health, then you've missed the gospel. Yes, certainly God has demonstrated a kindness towards you. But do not miss the great love in which He has loved you in bringing you from death to life. When we start with the love of God is about me and redemption is about me we are sliding down a slope to believe a false gospel so because of his great love which he's loved us we are then now what verse five tells us which shows us the third picture of God's character and his nature that God is glorious in his grace that when we were dead in our sins or dead in our trespasses we were made alive together with Christ. We're going to explore that next week. Made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. By grace you have been saved. Once again, a reminder. Why? Why do we need another reminder of the state of mankind? Why? Because it is to show us once again how glorious. His intervention is. By grace, you have been saved. A new word for us, saved. A new word, saved. It's describing our our new position in Christ. I think we can also put it with what chapter 1 said, the redeemed. The reconciled. And this is a theme. God's grace is what runs through Ephesians. And as this grace runs through Ephesians, it is constantly coming against our pride. It comes against our pride. Grace is the unmerited favor of God given to those who are by nature totally undeserving of that favor or good pleasure. Since Christians were once dead, they had to be made alive before they could believe. And it is by God's grace in which He has saved us. In which He has made us alive. This is why salvation is by grace alone. This is one of those places that we stand we and cannot, we cannot bend on. As love is so misinterpreted, so is the grace of God. In fact, to many, the grace of God is offensive. Even those who claim to follow Christ, because if they they take it the way that we look at it, meaning you don't deserve anything but the wrath of God, but God in His free grace has loved you and then saved you, many would say, that's not fair. That's not fair. And the reason why they would claim it's not fair is because they cannot control it themselves. You cannot control God's grace. That it's up to me. It's up to me whether I I want it or not. Isn't this the same as mercy? That we presume that we are owed grace? By definition, that kills grace. By definition, it's no longer grace. You earned it. Where does that come from? Where does that offensiveness to God's glorious grace come from? The pride of man. Walking the course of this world. Verses 1-3, through three, the description of, of all mankind. But this verse, just like many others, it leaves us with no room to bring anything to the table. We' got nothing. We have nothing to bring to the table. And to those who are being saved, the grace of God is what we delight in. The grace is God. the grace of God is what we bring glory to God for. When I was confronted with this reality, of the offensiveness of grace toward me, that I thought... There was something that I did to conjure up grace toward me. I was offended. I said, Certainly that's not true. Certainly I, I, I did something. And there was very little joy there at all. And when it came down to it, it's very pragmatic, and the way I thought about it was this what gives God the greater glory? What gives God the most glory? Free unmerited favor of God's grace. And it is by grace that we have been saved. By grace. Nothing else. Nothing of you, nothing nothing of me, nothing of your merit. And this is where we will once again find joy. Find freedom. Freedom. So back to the faucet illustration. Back to the faucet illustration. So so God is, is self sufficient. God is not the bucket that we are filling up, but rather God is filling us up, filling us up. And if we try to plug it up, if we try to stop it, it simply overflows. It's not something that we control. God's sovereign will is the one whose hand is on the faucet that just keeps turning it on more and more. God creates us so that, not that we can fill Him up, but rather He wants to fill us up. We are the needy ones, not God. Sometimes the gospel message has been illustrated as a drowning swimmer. And many want to say that it's like this, is that there's a person, or we'll just say we, that we were helpless and stranded in the middle of a vast ocean or lake. And we're, we're struggling to keep our heads above water. We are, we are getting exhausted. We are, we are tired. There's no hope in sight. And we've heard this, we might have heard this illustration before, that at some point the, the, the preacher of this illustration would point out how, how your struggles and your exhaustion and how difficult it is to get through the day, your, your guilts and your failures are all what makes you tired as you swim or try to keep your head above water. And as the dramatic scene is set, and you can just kind of picture that drowning, they will then introduce Jesus, the lifeguard. The lifeguard that that comes and and, and throws a lifeline to you. And then the preacher would say, all you have to do now is swim to the rope. And they call that faith. Hold on to it. Hold on to that rope and you'll be rescued. You will be saved. Sounds good. Sounds familiar. But is it biblical? Biblical. Well, after all the things that I said to you this morning, you're probably like, no, it doesn't sound right. Taking the same analogy, let's correct it. You see, we might have been swimming at some point, and we were, called Genesis 1 and 2, we were swimming. But you are no longer struggling or even exhausted. Things are much worse. You're lifeless. You're breathless. You're at the bottom of the ocean a lifeless body being tossed to and fro back and forth by the current and the tides of this world. No hope of any lifeguard could do for you. Nothing. At that point, you're done. You're food for the fish. But God. But God. The only one that could intervene the only one that could, that could intervene, being rich in mercy because of His great love, He sent His Son. And Jesus dove to the bottom of the ocean. He grabbed your lifeless and cold body and He brought it back to land. But at the price of your rescued, He died. The cost of bringing you back to life cost Him His life. And yet that rescuer, Jesus, came back to life, rose from the dead, defeating death, and defeating death has brought you back to life. Overcoming death made us alive. By grace we have been saved. So how now do we respond to that? Don't we respond as that lifeless body looking up when we come back alive at the beauty of our Savior and and say, thank you. I could do nothing. I was dead. I don't even know how deep I was, but now I know I'm alive. What joy is there if we were the ones who grabbed the rope and pulled ourselves in and Jesus pats you on the back and says, now go to church and read your Bible some more. What joy is that? The joy that drives us in our obedience is we want to follow that Master, that Savior who rescued us, who pulled us out of the depth of the ocean and made us alive. That's what drives us. Let us be very careful not to shape God's love, God's mercy, and God's grace to our own expectations to our own cultural expectations, to our old former church understanding teachings. Let's not shape it in that way, but let's always conform it to the Scripture. God loves us. Rich in mercy. By His glorious grace, saved you. This is what we trust in. This is what we delight in. And this is the, the gospel message that mothers, right, Mother's Day, that mothers need to apply. And this is the message that's for all of us. But for mothers, for, for you as you hear this message and as you shepherd your children day in, day out, Is this, is that God has intervened in your life. That God, in His rich mercy, has intervened in your life. That in all your failures, and all your faults, and all of your weaknesses, and all of your sins, and your kids expose it daily. That God still loves you. That God still delights in you. And those two truths will never change because it's not based upon your faults and failures and weakness and sins, but it's based upon His righteousness and based upon His saving grace. So when you are tired, when you fear, when you have anxiety, when you are confused, when you're at your wit's end, may the Spirit of God recall to you in your mind, and your heart, the good news of this message. I think another thing that applies to to moms and even to the rest of us, you can kind of just take it as you leave it, but... Next thing is, is you're not your children's rescuer. Jesus is. Trust in Him. You're not your own rescuer. Jesus is. You're not your own rescuer. Another one is your your children need the gospel. They need this message as you once did. They, they need the gospel as you, as you once did. And one of the ways, I think one of the greatest ways that, that, that God has given us as parents to show the gospel to our children is the way that we uh, confess sin and repent before them. When we sin before them, when we've sinned against them, that we confess our sin and we just say, we're, we're just trying to follow Christ. Christ. And we ask for repentance. That's displaying the gospel. That's displaying the the humility. It's displaying God's grace and your dependence upon His grace. And eventually, that's where your kids will look. Your number one task in this life, as busy as it gets in this life, that we think is our task, is to point our children to the gospel to point them to Christ, to point them to the richness and the mercy of God, to point them to the greatness of God's love and His glorious saving grace that they need. And we all need that. This is, this is not just a message for moms, of course. This is, this is a message for all of us, that we need this. This is, this is why I believe the Holy Spirit is showing this to them, is because we need to be reminded this is where you once were but God, but God. So let's pray. Father, thank you for loving us. We are nobody in particular. In the eyes of this world, we are nothing else that stands out. We are not superior than any others. As ones who deserve your grace, as one who deserves your mercy, this is a mystery. This is a mystery why you would choose to save us. But the truth of it is, is you have... And our only response is to worship, to delight, to exalt in that great joy that is found in this truth, the freedom that is found. That we are no longer performance driven, but we are grace driven. I hope us to see these things today as we respond together in openness. In truth, help us to respond or we repent as we need to. Repent as we have belittled maybe grace, belittled your love. But may we be encouraged by your word. In Jesus' name, amen.